My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. Today, I'm happy to announce we have a sponsor, which is Macmillan LLP, a Canadian leading business law firm with an international presence and client base. The firm has offices in Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, Ottawa, Montreal, and Hong Kong, and specializes in business law, capital markets and securities regulation, mergers and acquisitions, natural resource law, and many other things. I would like in particular to thank our legal counsel, Roland Hurst, who is a leading capital markets, M&A, and mining lawyer at the law firm of Macmillan based here in Vancouver. Roland acts as a trusted advisor to mining companies, entrepreneurs, and financiers, assisting them with their domestic and international mining projects. Roland's done a lot of work for Resource Insider. We've been very happy with the things that he's done and Macmillan in general. So we're very proud to have them as a sponsor here at Resource Insider today. Today on the podcast, we sit down with none other than Nolan Watson, the president and CEO of Sandstorm Gold. Now, many listeners will be familiar with Nolan as he has led a very public career in the mining industry particularly when it comes to the royalty and streaming world. Nolan has built an extremely successful company, created a generous charity focused on education in Sierra Leone, and he's involved in a host of other causes and projects, and he is only 39 years old. I could probably spend 10 minutes of this intro just going through the awards that he's won, the media outlets he's uh, been featured on, or the other causes and projects that he's involved in. But I won't do that, because in today's podcast, we get into a lot about Nolan's life that he hasn't spoken about publicly before. This includes early experiences that led him to entrepreneurship. Uh, We talk about why he became an accountant, even though he never intended to. We talk about mentorship, how he sought that out early in his career, and how he feels about it today. We really get into depth about the concept of integrity, um, what that means in terms of running a business, and also what that means in terms of looking at investment opportunities and the management teams running them. In addition to Nolan's personal life, we talk about the changes that have been going on at Sandstorm over the last few years, the changes in management that have put together a world-class technical team, the changes in strategy that have allowed them to pursue different kinds of projects and different types of assets and how Nolan intends to grow the company and create value over the next several years. I had a great time sitting down and talking with Nolan today. He really is one of the best long-term and strategic thinkers that I've had the opportunity to know. And this podcast offers a lot of great advice for anyone who is investing in the mining industry, working in the mining industry, or anyone that's ever thought about starting their own business or hitting the next level in their career and pursuing big goals, whether at a young age or otherwise. So without further ado, let me please introduce Nolan Watson, CEO of Sandstorm Gold. 
Nolan, welcome to the podcast today. Well, thanks for having me here. So we're sitting here in Vancouver in your office, and I wanted to meet up today and discuss Sandstorm Gold and your background and what, how Sandstorm Gold got built, why it got built, and where you see it going in the future. Um, but you know, before we, we go into that, I, I was digging into your background in preparation for this podcast, and most of our listeners will probably have heard of you before in your role as CEO and president of Sandstorm. But you know, you've done a lot over your career. You're a chartered accountant, you've been a CFO, you've been an entrepreneur and a founder, you've been the CEO of Sandstorm for the last decade, you've also founded a very successful charity, you've been a young global re- leader for the World uh, Economic Forum, you've done a TEDx talk, and you've been on, I think, dozens of media outlets and won a range of rewar- awards from EY's 40 Under 40, uh, Business in Vancouver CEO of the Year. So. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, when you, if you were to meet someone that didn't know you, wasn't familiar with the mining industry, and they asked sort of what you do day to day, how would you go about answering that? <laughs> well, it's a it's a tough thing to answer because one of the things I love about my job is every day is different. But I think the key for me is my main focus, being the CEO of Sandstorm, is to run a legitimate world class business, and to do that, you have to have world class people. So I spend a lot of my time making sure that we have the right people in the right seats at Sandstorm and all the way from technical teams to accounting and finance teams to corporate development people. And then ensuring that we invest the capital that shareholders have entrusted to us in in smart things. And that's really the two pieces of my job. And Sandstorm has grown a lot and changed a lot over the years. But so just so people know, how old is Sandstorm now? Is it 10 years old? Sandstorm's just coming up on 10 years. We... We started the business in the summer of 2008. We didn't actually officially launch and close our first financing and our first transactions until early 2009, but that was because of the, the great recession that was happening at the time. Mm-hmm. It delayed us a bit. So I, I want to get into today the, the genesis of Sandstorm and, and why you felt it was an opportunity you had to pr- sort of go after, but you were quite successful at a young age prior to Sandstorm. So how old are you today? I'm 39 today. 39. So you were 29 or 28 when you started Sandstorm. 29 when we started the business. So at this point, you grew up in BC, in Vancouver. (laughs) Yes. You became a chartered accountant. Yes. You articled at Deloitte? Yeah, well, it's a funny story. So if if you want to go all the way back to... uh, those origins, <clears throat> I did become a chartered accountant, but only because my girlfriend in university uh, derailed my plans to get an MBA because she found out that if I articled as a chartered accountant, they would pay me and we could get married sooner. <laughs> and I, I purposefully didn't go to any of the chartered accounting nights, recruiting sessions, nothing. I had a firm plan to go get an MBA and I ended up getting an unsolicited job offer from one of the big five firms at the time called Arthur Anderson. Mm-hmm. They hand delivered a job offer to my house out in White Rock and um, when my girlfriend found that out, she basically told me that I'm going to become a chartered accountant and we're going to get married and I accepted the job and a few weeks later I bought a ring and we've been married a long time. So, so what were you studying? <laughs> So I was studying uh, accounting. So my father was, 
he was a chartered accountant, but he basically articled and then went right into business. And he was an entrepreneur for, for his whole career. And now in sort of the post CEO entrepreneurial role years, he's now a mentor to other CEOs. So mm -hmm. he had a fantastic career. It was really entertaining to watch. And <clears throat> I knew I wanted a career like that. And I didn't want to just be working at a, at a CA firm. And so I decided that what I wanted to do was I wanted to learn the, all the fundamental skills in business, things like marketing, things like finance, things like accounting. And I figured that accounting was the hardest one to learn post-undergrad. Right. I don't really learn a lot of it in MBAs yeah. or other formal settings. So I figured that if I wanted to tackle all the different skill sets of business, that uh, majoring in accounting and then rolling into an MBA in finance or an MBA in strategy or marketing would be the way to go. So you were getting that out of the way early on. Yeah, get, get the boring part out of the way. What's, what sort of business did your father run? Everything from soccer companies. So he was the president of a company called Umbro North America. They do yeah. soccer clothing. He was a president of a snowboard company. He was the president and CEO and, and co-founder of a teenage girls cosmetics company called Caboodles. <laughs> he was the president of um, a company called Spy. They do sunglasses and yeah and goggles. And I'm probably missing a few here. but huh. So, and did he found any of these companies or did he come in to run them and to manage them? Umbro, he came in as a young accountant actually and worked his way up to CFO and then CEO. And then subsequent to that, he, he co-founded all of those, those other businesses in relation to the North American markets. So you got to, I guess, a bit of a front row seat into entre entrepreneurship growing up. Yeah. And you were in no way deterred by that? Was that, did that sort of set the course as something you wanted to do or... Did you learn lessons along the way from that? No, he had he had high highs and, and low lows, as I think all entrepreneurs do, and learned from those and got better and better. And that's the reason he's he's able to be a mentor to other CEOs uh, around the world right now. And it's one of the things that I took away was knowing full well that if you go to be an entrepreneur and a leader in business, you're going to have successes and you're going to have failures. But if you do it right and you learn, you'll have more successes than failures over time. Did going in with that um, mindset affect how you took risks early on? And, and I, I asked that question because I read an interview with you once where you were very clear that you had never taken debt before. And that I think when you bought your house, you, your first house, you bought for cash. And that yep. you, were, you, know, you were the CFO of a... Uh, New York Stock Exchange traded company living in a basement apartment without a <laughs> that know, is it that is a, a true story. So how did I mean how did that did that growing up in that environment and seeing the ups and downs of entrepreneurship sort of impact your willingness to take personal debt in that way? Yeah, I, th I think the types of risks that you take are different with a business versus what you have to be willing to take in your personal life as an entrepreneur. So at Sandstorm, we try to take as little risk as possible. That's our entire business model is mm -hmm. cut out as many risks. That's why we're a royalty company is we don't like a lot of the risks inherent in, in the mining industry. But on the personal side, to start up any business, you have to take tremendous amounts of risk. I mean, the first risk is you have to quit whatever other job you had. And, and at the time, I was making a million dollars a year of a, being a CFO in my mid-20s of a world-class multi-billion dollar New York Stock Exchange listed company, quitting that job was not an easy decision. I mean, that was a huge risk for me because if it didn't if it didn't pay off, getting that job back wasn't going to happen or probably any job like it. Right. <clears throat> and so one of the things that I decided early in my career was if I was going to take risks in my personal life and with my career that I had to set myself up so that there would be minimal damage done if 
I had early failure. So no debt was an important part of that. I just didn't want to be in a position where if I failed at a business, uh, I would also lose my house. And so we always rented it until we had enough money to buy a house with cash. So can I ask, um, quitting a million dollar a year job and having a relatively new <laughs> wife, how did that uh, conversation go? <laughs> I guess we had been married for probably six years at the time. Uh, how did the conversation go? Uh, it w- the decision was made easier for me because she made it for me. <laughs> okay. Because uh, we grew Silver Wheaton from nothing to a $5 billion market cap company in three and a half years. And you don't do that without tremendous amount of work. Uh, I was probably working 100 to 120 hours a week, depending on the week. And... And I distinctly remember one vacation where we were trying to close, I think it was the Penasquito deal that Silver Wheaton did. And um, I w- had booked a holiday to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And it was with friends. And, and my wife didn't want to break off the holiday when this deal came up because she didn't want to disappoint her friends. So she told me I was going despite the deal. And I said, okay, but I've got to actually work on this holiday. And, and uh, six days later when the holiday was over, I hadn't actually seen the beach once. <laughs> I was in the hotel the entire time talking on the phone and trying to put the transaction together. And when I got home, my cell phone bill was $12,000. <laughs> That's how much talking I, I did on the phone. And I had a wife that said, okay, you're done. Go find something new to do. <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay. So let's back up a little bit before that. Before that, you were at Deloitte and you were, were you working with Ian Telford and Goldcorp? On the Deloitte side, and is that how you ended up getting pulled out into Wheaton, and then what is now Wheaton Precious? Yeah, so the way that I, I didn't really know much of Ian Telfer. Um, I guess he had just started up a company called Wheaton River Minerals, which eventually merged with Gold Corp, and he took over the new combined entity. The way I got in was when, so I originally did my articling at Arthur Anderson. When Arthur Anderson imploded worldwide back in the early 2000s, we merged with Deloitte. Right. My mentor from Arthur Anderson, a guy named Rowan Hazelton, who's also still an executive in the mining industry, he ended up, he was doing audit work for Wheaton River Minerals. They ended up hiring him. And then when they started up this Silver Wheaton thing, they brought me in to help run those finances as well as help work on uh, M&A at Gold Corp. And so we were running at the time what was effectively a billion dollar company in the form of Gold Corp. And there were only 16 people in the head office. Mm-hmm. So all of us were working with the Intelfer. But because I was doing a lot of deals, deal work, deal analysis, valuations, I spent quite a bit of time with them. So I, I want to sort of shift from that and, and ask you, did you receive a lot of mentorship there when you were at Gold Corp? Or was it sort of a hit the ground running and figure it out as you go? And I mean, Ian's got a huge reputation in the space for, for building companies and a lot of success. Did you find working under someone with that pedigree and that reputation to, to really add value in the way you make decisions going forward? Or I, I think the key is no matter what job you have, uh, always learn from the people that you're working for. And some of them will be amazing. Learn that. Some of them will be terrible. Learn from that. <laughs> it's equally important to learn from bad bosses as it is from good ones. And I've never been a big believer in the concept of formal mentorship, walking up to someone and saying, will you be my mentor? Yeah. But I've always believed in unofficial mentorships and just finding who are the smart people and trying to get on their files, trying to work with them, trying to find ways to get in the room where they're, they're making decisions. 
And so I've, I've been very strategic about doing that, whether I was at Arthur Anderson or Deloitte or Wheaton River or Silver Wheaton or Gold Corp, or even at Sandstorm, I have some employees that are much better than me at certain skills. And, and unofficially, I spent a lot of time watching the decisions that they make and how they do it. And you were, so I remember being told by a mutual friend that when you were in your 20s, you started something called the 20 Club. <laughs> Is that right? Uh, yeah, there's, there was a, a guy named Christopher Bennett and myself, we started an organization called the 20 Club, and it was effectively a, a secret society is probably too strong a word, but an invite-only group for people who wanted to do great things in their careers and had a lot of potential but hadn't achieved it yet. So we're all in our early 20s at this point. I think I was 23 years old, and yeah. my net worth was zero, and I was just starting my career. And so we started up this group and we would get together monthly and we'd create goal plans for each other and we would push each other and you'd have to read your goal plan aloud and half the point was to have other people say, no, you're not pushing yourself hard enough, your goals need to be bigger. And then the next month they would actually go and see, did you actually do those things? And we, we pushed each other really hard and I would say probably 80% of us are, are leaders and CEOs in industry. What, what do you think it was that helped do that? Was that a self-selecting model that people who were probably going to be successful were taking those steps or was it the accountability uh, sort of put in place by a group like that? What do you think the, the aspects were that drove you know 80% of them to, to see success? Well, it's a good question. I've, I've asked myself that a lot. We definitely had some people in the group who were bound for great things no matter what. We also had some people in the group who I can almost guarantee you would not have accomplished anything of significance had it not been for the group. And so it really depends on the individual person. Uh, I do think that goal setting and accountability are very important aspects to being successful when you're young. Mm -hmm. do you, have you brought any of the sort of lessons learned from that into Sandstorm and the companies you're working with today in terms of mentoring or providing that, that uh, those same skills for younger employees to, to push them their way up the ladder? Well, certainly I think that... <laughs> that one of the things that I learned is it's, it is a lot easier to find a self-motivated person who's going to be successful irrespective of whether or not you're there mm -hmm. than it is to motivate someone who is, is not currently motivated. And so through that process and learning that lesson, we try to staff Sandstorm with future CEOs and teach them the things that they need. In fact, that's some of the pitch to some of the younger executives that we bring on, which is, I know you want to be a CEO one day, and that's awesome, and I think you'll have a higher shot of getting there if you work for us for five to 10 years first. So what kind of qualities, like how does someone distinguish themselves as a would-be, or at least want-to-be CEO in the future when they sit down with you or your, or your partner here, Dave Orham, in an interview, and what, do you, what kind of things do you guys look for? Well, you look for a lot of different things because not all leaders in business have the same personalities. So I think one of the one of the mistakes some people make when they're looking for what leadership looks like, or even when they're if you're a young person and you're trying to decide how do I become a leader, what skills do I need, a lot of people think things about you know, being able to stand up and give an inspirational speech to a, a staff of employees and sure. and being this extroverted leader. The science in leadership is the exact opposite. The vast majority of successful leaders who get uh, consistent, better returns for their shareholders on a risk-adjusted basis are actually introverts. So a lot of the signs you would think of leadership or the skills that you think you need to develop aren't actually the ones that you need. You need things like high emotional intelligence. You need empathy. You need work ethic. 
you have to be someone who is willing to learn and master the subject area that you're in and be willing to learn from others around you and being the type of person who other people want to work with and that attracts successful people. And those are some of the key things that we look for. Okay. So when I when I read really about the earlier years of your career, it's a pretty meteoric rise, really. There's not many, um, you know, there weren't any 20-something-year-olds who were, you were the youngest person who was a CFO of a New York Stock Exchange listed company at the time. Is that is that right? And still to this day, actually. So ever? Yep. Okay. So that's an unusual scenario to find yourself. And I was reading about this this morning, and it's about the idea of competing for the middle, in that most people are competing for the middle job, you know, being, and these are still good jobs, but being a partner at a law firm or a partner in an accounting firm or a CFO or a, of, a, of a company at the end of their career. But they're not thinking about how you take these really big steps, maybe early on or maybe even just throughout your career, uh, and a, a sort of competing for that sort of peak role. And there's very few people that are actually trying to do that or have the, the mindset of going after it. And I kind of think of this as the ability to think at scale, to be able to think really, really big. And do you, you basically did that very early on. And do you know why you were able to do that? Or do you know what experiences that you had that gave you the confidence to go after that where very few people do? I think I got fortunate really early in life, uh, very young. Uh, obviously, the things that I mentioned already about watching my father, but all the way back even to high school, I. I went to a small private school that every year had the ability to take about 20 guys, there were literally only 20 males between grade 11 and 12, to put together a basketball team from. And you can, you can imagine the basketball team's probably not going to be very good. And time after time and after time, they managed to win AAA Provincial Championship. And you see how they do it, and the answer is they work harder than everybody else. They'll take a guy who's five foot nine, they'll tell them that you've got to sink 500 baskets a day, you've got to be at basketball practice before school, you've got to be at basketball practice after school. During the periods of time where it is illegal for schools to actually run basketball practices, you will have um, parents volunteer to run basketball practices. You have to be in eight basketball tournaments every summer and eight basketball camps. And so boys played basketball and girls played volleyball. And so on the volleyball side, uh, my wife, actually, she played volleyball for okay. for that same coach. And uh, in grade eight, you know, they needed 12 girls for a volleyball team, and we had 13 girls in our class, and my wife was the only one who didn't make the team. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and she just quite candidly wasn't, wasn't very athletic, but um, coach pushed her during the season, even though she wasn't on the team, here's the things you got to do. Here's here's how you got to train. So it was trained no matter what, whether it you was, were on. It the, was trained no matter team. what. Yep. And fast forward five years, she was the captain of a provincial championship volleyball team. At that same school. At or the same it? school, and just learning that work ethic. And so I I was five foot eight. I knew I wasn't going to the NBA, and and so I decided to take that same level of work ethic and apply it to my academics at the time. So I became valedictorian of the high school when I was in UBC. I 
graduated with honors. And when I went through the uh, chartered accounting program, I finished number one out of a thousand people in Western Canada. And I literally own the world's geekiest award ever, which is a gold medal in accounting. (laughs) (laughs) But you just continue that level of work ethic and when it gets ingrained in you. So I then did my CFA and applied the same level of work ethic and and had no problem with that program. And, And then in my career, applied the same level of work ethic and and it just it works so when you talk about work ethic what does what does that actually mean so does that mean sort of getting into the office and working harder than everyone else or does it mean sort of a, a the way i i've seen you work and a lot of leaders in the space work who i've seen do well it's really a discipline of focus on them thinking about the important things a lot of the time and being and i you know when i look at your list here Something that strikes me is you do a lot of things, but you probably don't do all the things that you could be doing. That you probably have a lot of opportunities, a lot of good opportunities that you have to turn down that would be fun or interesting or, or good development, but you focus on these things. Is Does that play a factor in it? And how do you know, I think I've sprawled this question into two questions here, but you know, how do you know what things are the key to focus on and how do you stay focused on those things to to really hone that work to being the most productive to your overall goals? Yeah, I I think, first of all, you have to be wise about what are the things that you need to focus on. It it sounds absurd, but actually simply asking yourself the question, what are the things that if I do them will get me there? So it starts off at planning. It doesn't matter whether you're studying for an exam. So if I was studying for an exam in university, it would be, if I'm going to spend 100 hours studying for this exam, what am I actually doing? Is it more important to read the textbook? Is it more important to read my notes? If I'm reading the textbook, what form do I actually take notes while I'm studying? Do I reread those notes? What frequency do I do it? You create a plan and you go, at the end of the day, if you go, if I do this plan, I will be successful at what I'm trying to achieve. So you start out with a plan. You have to be purposeful about it. And then you work your butt off trying to accomplish those things. And it's the same in your career. It's the same starting up a company. And... um, it's just a, a key success factor for life. And you're absolutely right. One of the things you said was you have to focus on saying no to a lot of things. And that was a weakness of mine early on in my life. I burned myself out very seriously a couple times along the way because I was just trying to do too much. I was trying to do too many things. And uh, and actually saying no is is important. I It's kind of funny. I'm taking my one of my daughters on a father-daughter retreat next month and... <laughs> one of the questions that they ask in the survey is what's your daughter's favorite hobby and what's your favorite hobby and so i filled hers out and put a question mark for mine because <laughs> there's just not enough time to have have significant hobbies for me so it is what it is is there anything you've done that that most executives wouldn't have th- th- and i have some things in mind that might fill this but most executives wouldn't have devoted time to that you have devoted time to that's created a tremendous amount of fulfillment either either in your personal life or your professional life that you wouldn't have expected that it would? Well, that's a really good question. I would say in the company I spend probably more time than just about any other CEO thinking strategically about who's in, who's in the office and what types of people and what skills do they need to learn to be successful in their own careers even if that career is not here. 
and I'm, I'm very, very proud of the Sandstorm team that we have built, and they're truly incredible people, and they're very good at what they do, and the team just gets stronger and stronger every year. I mean, if I can leave a legacy of, of having had 40 past employees go on to be CEO, successful CEOs in the mining industry, that'll be a, a, a career achievement that I'm proud of. And so that's one thing that I do in, in my personal life. I would say that one of the things that I, I do differently than, than some executives is I really work hard trying to uh, put family as a priority, which is really hard when all of the success factors in my life leading up to the point of having a family are outwork other people, which means you pour all of your time into it. And then trying to learn to adapt that when you've got three daughters to I still want to apply that same work ethic approach, but I also want to be an exceptional father. And so that's something that I think I spend a lot more time strategically thinking about how to do that than, than some other people. So this is a, a question that I'm interested in based on that, but it's a little off topic. With regards to the parenting, then what, what are the areas that you think <laughs> would add the, most, add the most value, right? Because you don't have an unlimited amount of time. You're not at home all day. Uh, but there are probably key things you want to be doing that you think will, I mean, be personally fulfilling to yourself, but also add value to your children's lives and the lives of your family as a whole. Yeah. Is there anything you've identified that takes a lot of your, that you focus your energy on? So one of the things that I do that uh, I think is really value added is um, before bed every single night with every single one of my daughters. And so one of my daughters is actually now old enough. She's moved out of, out of home. Uh, but right up until the day before she moved out of home, every night before bed, we go. I go through a bedtime routine with each of my daughters. I don't literally tuck them in, but um, with my youngest, I still do. But we'll sit and chat for anywhere between half an hour to an hour. I mean, that's my whole evening is just sort of going through this routine. And we will read together. We will then sit down and just talk about life together. We'll talk about things that are going well for her and for me and things that are not going well for her and for me and ways that we can, you know, make make life more successful. We talk about the purpose of life. We talk about why we exist. We talk about particle physics. We talk about <laughs> whatever the topic happens to be that night. And I found it's a very good way to get a very um, strong bond with kids and and actually make a meaningful difference in their lives um, in within the constraints of the time that I have being a CEO of a public company. Do they understand uh, that your job is probably more consuming than the average one of their friends' father's jobs or parents' jobs? They do now that they're older. They didn't when they were younger. I still remember the first time that my my firstborn daughter, I think she was about eight at the time, we were going through our bedtime routine, and, and she said, Dad, you know that normal dads don't work as much as you do, right? <laughs> <laughs> and... I think they were disappointed about that at the time, but now they, they understand. They're actually really proud of, of what I do, and uh, they're starting to learn a lot about business themselves, and I think they think it's pretty cool, and and uh, they see the sacrifices that I make on the business side to spend time with them, and they appreciate that. So, so beyond running a business, beyond taking care of your family, you also run a charity. Yes. Nations Cry. Yep. It's focused on education in Sierra Leone. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so it's something my wife and I always wanted to uh, do and give back. And we used to, she was my high school sweetheart. We were 16 years old. And we even back then, we were talking about the difference we wanted to make positively in the world. And and through, for a whole host of reasons that I won't go into because we don't have enough time, we ended up choosing education in Sierra Leone. 
and my wife is an educator by profession, a third generation school teacher, and so she kind of runs uh, sort of the educational strategy of it uh, from here. And I theoretically run the, the business and administrative side. Practically, we have some fantastic people, including uh, Denver Harris, who uh, actually works for me at Sandstorm. Um, people who uh, have ever phoned investor relations will, will know of Denver. He actually cold called me one day and said, um, hi, you don't know me, but uh, I would like to work for Nations Cry. And I said, well, that's that's um, unfortunate for you because Nations Cry doesn't pay anyone any money. It's <laughs> some volunteer-based organization. But um, he was uh, very exceptional at sales uh, at the time in his current job. And I actually knew his boss who thought he was an all-star employee. And so I thought, well, we like all-star employees at Sandstorm. So I gave him a job at Sandstorm. And, uh, and so he helps me on the administration side. And uh, for the charity Nations Cry, we, we currently have uh, 200 kids going to 400 kids and junior secondary and senior secondary being educated uh, for free in Sierra Leone right now. Wow. Uh any plans to going forward to grow it or to change it, or is it? Is it well, we're in a big growth phase right now to get up to 400, and it is it is pretty expensive to supply world class education. We're not trying to supply the same quality of education that that can be found elsewhere in Sierra Leone. Yeah. We're trying to take that up a significant step, and so uh, once we get up to full critical mass of, of 400 kids, then it'll just be an issue of making sure there's funding sustainability for for the charity and. And that'll be the focus for the next while. And where does that funding primarily come from? Yeah, mostly mining executives. Uh, there's a rule, if you're a Canadian registered charity, you can't get more than 49% of your funds from any party that is related to the organization. So you, you, you can't have a rich guy starting up a charity saying the charity's purpose is to give me a Lamborghini. <laughs> and, right. and and right tax donation receipts for it. the Canada Revenue Agency wants external validation for mm -hmm. the purpose of the charity so they force 51% of the funds to come for external sources so my wife and I we uh, we donate 49% of all of the funds raised the maximum amount allowable under law and then the rest comes from mining executives including um, Dave DeWitt and Marcel DeGroot and, and Dave Orham and other people that are affiliated with Sandstorm okay now this, in a roundabout way, brings me to something I want to talk about, uh, and something you've discussed before is the idea of integrity. So, one of the first times I heard you talk about this was when you were in a panel, and I don't remember who was interviewing you, but he said something along the lines of, "You know, what do you look for? What is the key to running a successful business? What do you look for in other businesses you invest in?" And what you said is integrity in the way they do business and the way management operates, et cetera, et cetera. What do you mean by that specifically? And how has sort of that concept influenced the way you run Sandstorm and make decisions? I think most people fundamentally understand the concept of integrity. Um, it's probably best recognized when it's absent. Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. People, people are very good at identifying when other people are not acting with integrity. And I think that that I was raised by parents who beat that into me when I was a kid, not physically, obviously. Um, but integrity was a very, very important part of my upbringing. Um, grew up in, in the Christian church, and it was something that obviously pastors talk a lot about. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was always sort of on my radar as an important thing to do. I think that 
that uh, also the way my wife and I raise our daughters is, you know, integrity is is a very, very uh, important concept. And I, I would say that one of my weaknesses as a business person is too often, especially earlier in my career, I assumed the same integrity levels within other people, only to go on and find out that they're yes. absolutely trying to screw you and steal your money. <laughs> especially when you're in the mining business. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, I've, I've gotten a lot wiser, but I would still say if, if, I, if, I, still have, oh. if I still have a weakness today, that the the main challenge is when people that have lack of integrity are demonstrating that to me i although i'm a very patient person i lose my patience very quickly just because it's such an important issue to me when i realize i'm dealing with someone that doesn't have integrity um, i get pretty mad I, I guess when i think about that do you so this is a bit of a a roundabout question but Often I think people make moves or decisions that lack integrity because they think it will make them more successful or more happy or get them whatever they're after. Have yeah. you found that, you know, having that background, you mentioned you were raised in the Christian church and that, you know, that's a very, there's a doctrine behind that and a dogma and a list of absolute rights and wrongs. Do you find abiding by those ideas has actually added value to your life and, and in your ability to achieve the goals you wanted? Or have they been a hindrance to the things you've wanted at times? I don't define success by by just money. I mean, money is an important mm -hmm. thing because it's a tool that allows me to do other things, including Nations Cry, which we we talked about, and and helping make the world a better place, and investing in my kids' education, and all those types of things. But generally speaking, success is much bigger than that from a personal level, and so it is not at all hindered me being a successful person. It has it absolutely, in my opinion, been one of the key critical success factors. And today at Sandstorm, if someone is attempting to do a transaction with Sandstorm, they know by reputation that we are straightforward and uh, an organization that will deal with them with integrity. And they know that I'm that type of person and it, it makes doing business so much easier for us. I would say there, I could be a lot wealthier today mm -hmm if I didn't have integrity than I am today. But uh, I don't know that that statement would hold true to the 70-year-old version of Nolan. I think the 70-year-old version of Nolan, having an, an entire career acting with integrity, will, would end up wealthier than the 70 version of Nolan if he didn't have integrity. Integrity is something that pays off in the long run, not in the short run. I mean, the reason I ask that question is, I mean, especially I'm at a stage in my career, I'm I know a lot of people that are just starting out running their own company or they're moving up to a point where they're really making decisions. And there's a lot of temptation, I guess, to take the easy path or the <laughs> fast paths. And I mean, you know this as well, and, and any of our listeners who have invested in mining will know that it's very easy to design companies or do deals in ways that take advantage of other people and at least in the short term, make yourself quite wealthy. Uh, and I, I can see the appeal to doing that. And it's a lot of people there's the ability to make a lot of money very quickly, but you rarely see those people around in five, 10, or 20 years within, within the industry. Yeah, if you're gonna lack integrity, you better make a lot of money legally very <laughs> fast <laughs> because it won't take long for other people to figure out what you're all about and the, the gig will be up. Fair enough. All right, we should probably talk about Sandstorm Gold now. <laughs> um, 
Sandstorm is a royalty and streaming company. Some people won't know what that is. Can you give us a brief you know, elevator pitch overview of what royalties and streaming means? Yeah, so we're, we're a company that goes around and acquires royalties and other mining projects. And a royalty basically is a percentage of the revenue from the mine. There are some royalties that are NPI royalties or net profit interest royalties, and that's a percentage of the profits from the mine instead mm-hmm. of a percentage of the revenue from the mine. And we effectively go around acquiring these. Half the time, we are acquiring them from the company that is operating the mine so or wants to operate the mine. If you have a development company that needs money and has not yet raised it, they need money to go build a mine. And so we'll go to them and say, we will buy a royalty from you on your project in exchange for capital to do that. Other times, we're buying royalties that already exist on other people's minds, and we're buying them as packages. So, for example, um, Tech Cominco was a company that used to go around and have large exploration programs and when they would farm out their projects they would take back a royalty and they built up a portfolio and then we bought that whole portfolio and had mm-hmm. 53 royalties on it mm-hmm. and so we now have um, 189 streams and royalties around the world the stream is very similar to a royalty it's just you're getting the value above a fixed price so on gold instead of getting the full twelve hundred dollars you're getting the value of twelve hundred dollars above say four hundred dollars so it's, um, but the vast majority of our our portfolio is made up of royalties. So why would an investor want to own a royalty company versus a miner? Well, generally speaking, mining is a risky business, and some of the areas where investors have lost money in our industry in the past is you invest in a company that tells you that they're going to be able to mine gold for seven hundred dollars an ounce, and when they actually get the mine up and running, it costs. $1,000 an ounce, and so let's say gold is 1200 you originally thought that you were going to get a $500 per ounce margin, and now you're only getting a $200 per ounce margin, and to exacerbate it, to build the mine, you probably did it with debt, and now the $200 margin isn't enough to pay back the debt, and you go, the company goes bankrupt, and the investors lose all of their money, and you see that over and over and over again, and, and so streaming royalty companies, typically with the miners, we replace the need for debt, and so... Uh, one of the benefits as an investor in Sandstorm is if that mining company thought they're going to produce gold for 700 and it's actually a thousand instead, our revenue doesn't change. The mining company makes less money, but Sandstorm doesn't. So we take out that risk. We also take out the risk of capital cost overruns, and um, and you know there are other risks too. I th- one of the ways that I think about it is, or one of the big mistakes that I think a lot of investment bankers and mining executives still make to this day. It's pervasive in the industry is they will try to value a mine using a Excel spreadsheet. Yes. <laughs> where there is one revenue line and a whole bunch of cost lines, and then it comes down to free cash flow at the bottom, and they use a present value of future discounted cash flows. I have looked at thousands and thousands and thousands of those types of Excel spreadsheets, and virtually every single one, and I'm trying to think of an exception, and I don't think I've ever seen an exception, every single one, assumes that the mine is going to operate perfect every single day of the year with nothing going wrong on any day of the year. In reality, you have floods, you have sag motors burnout, you have electrical shortages, you have road blockades. And so a mine is is typically something that works great for 28 days and then it's down for two. Mm-hmm. And then great for 28 days and then down for five. Uh, or great for... 50 days 
and then it's operating at half capacity for the next 30 because something happened and one of your big sag mills went down. And so it's making money during the periods where it's operating, but during the periods where it's not, it's losing tons of money. You have all of your fixed costs of operating a mine and no revenue. And so the the actual cash flow that comes out at the end of the year is a combination of the days you're making money and the days you're not. And you don't get that with a, a streaming royalty company. If, if, if a mine is operating great for 28 days, Sandstorm gets its revenue for 28 days. If the mine is losing money for the next five, Sandstorm isn't making money, but we're not losing anything. Right. So a royalty company is always cash flow positive and, and never has to experience those cash flow negative events. And so our... Our revenue forecasts, our our earnings forecasts are um, much, much more reliable and much less risky than a mining company. And you're never burdened with the overhead of a mine that's been shut down, right? And all the closure costs and all the the care and maintenance costs and these sort of things that are often associated with a mine that you think is going to operate for a certain amount of time and then doesn't. And I I think it was you guys. I read years ago a, a short document that took a look at the number of mining companies that met their timelines. Was that, was that your yeah. team that put it together? And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you found that no companies, um, from the pre-feasibility stage to predicting when they would be in production, no one hit their target. Not any of the companies you looked at. Yeah, there, there are, the mining industry is full of companies that said, we built our mine on time and on budget. What they're referring to was the last time projection and the last budget, of which there have been 40 different time projections and <laughs> right. 40 different budgets. And so we did a study going back to the first time the company gave guidance as to when it was going to be built and how much it would cost. And we did not find one example where the first guidance was true. <laughs> okay. So Sandstorm and royalty companies in general are a way to sort of minimize this risk, get exposure to the revenues of these companies. Sandstorm is now a bit different than a typical royalty and streaming company over the last year or so. Uh, you acquired Mariana Resources, is that right? We did, yeah. And so you're actually going out and purchasing assets or companies or huge uh, stakes in these companies. So not entirely true. So uh, Mariana, their main asset was a 30% profits interest in an asset called Hot Modern. And uh, the, what they owned effectively is a contract. All royalties are just contracts. Yep. What they own is a contract that says once a year they're going to get a check equal to 30% of the value of the gold and copper sold. That's 30% of the costs. Okay. So it's more akin to an NPI type royalty. Right. The, the asset itself is, is a 40 meter wide ore body that has about 12 grams gold equivalent and it comes right up to surface. So the pre-feasibility study was put out recently that suggested that the all-in sustaining cost of producing gold there should be less than $400 per ounce on a um, co-product basis. And so this thing is just going to be a massive license to print money and, and we get checks once a year once it's up and running related to that. What, what made you sort of choose a slightly different approach of taking these much bigger uh, I mean, in this case, much bigger chunk of a company as opposed to a traditional smaller royalties. I mean, previous to this, you had done, you know, these big royalty packages and had a lot of success in big royalty packages that you got relatively cheaply, uh, small royalties on, on multiple assets. What was what drove the change in strategy there? Well, it's not really a change in strategy in the sense that if you look at uh, all the other big royalty companies, so Franco Nevada, Royal Gold, yeah. Wheat and Precious, 
and you ask yourself what is the largest royalty or stream that they have in their portfolio relative to their net asset value mm -hmm. in the case in virtually every single case the answer is somewhere between 25 to 35 percent of their net asset value as a company and so hot modern for us is right in there it's about 35 percent of our net asset value so we just consider it an anchor an anchor asset for us and the, the plan going forward for i think all of our competitors as well as sandstorm is to continue to go out and buy anchor royalties and streams and, and we'll keep doing that. So I want to talk about other changes uh, that are going on within Sandstorm right now and you've spoken about this a bit in the past but you've created something called Launch Lab. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and what it's designed for and how it works? Yeah this is something that I'm particularly passionate about because right now I'm a, I'm a finance guy, um, love capital markets, and we are in a complete sea change in terms of how capital markets work. So much money is being moved out of actively managed institutional investor funds and being put into passive funds, ETFs, which only invest in, in very large companies that are very liquid. And so all of that capital has basically evaporated to mid-tier and junior companies. It just it doesn't exist anymore. It's not, not available to them and the number of brokers that exist out there too, which used to be an important part of the capital formation entrepreneurial mm -hmm. side of the business, they're evaporating mm -hmm. too because of E-Trade and it's, you know, for $6 you can make a trade now, you don't need to pay a broker $1,000. And so what's, what we're seeing is the mechanism that the markets had to accumulate capital are broken for mid-tier and smaller companies, especially in the in the mining industry, which is a very capital-intensive business. And so we're looking to help be the solution to that. It helps us acquire streams and royalties in the process. After all, that's all we're trying to do. Our businesses build an awesome portfolio of streams and royalties. So Launch Lab, effectively what it is, is we're building a list of thousands of accredited investors who are super keen to know when we have diligenced something and why we invested in it. We will never give advice to someone. We will never tell them that they should invest in something. We will never uh, advise them. We will never take a fee. So we're not making money on this. We'll never take a fee for recommending to someone that they, they buy something. We're, we're not able to actually make that recommendation. All we're gonna do is provide people the service of knowing when we've invested in something and why we invested in it. And if there's an opportunity for them to invest, fantastic. And so we're building this massive list. And uh, we want to make that available to our partners who have incredible projects. Not all of the companies that we buy royalties on are, are going to have access to Launch Lab. Right. It's, it's really going to be only those special times where we look at something and go, holy cow, the market has no idea that this asset is as good as it is. So does this really come into a play when a company has a great asset, uh, it's run probably by a very strong technical team, but they don't have the, either the background or the capability to adequately get that story out there, market it to the right people and attract the capital that you guys think it deserves? Yeah, or, or it could also have a CEO who is competent in finance, but the markets just aren't listening for whatever reason, or maybe that person is earlier in their career. Mm -hmm. It would be the type of thing that I would have wished existed for Sandstorm when we were starting it up and didn't exist. And uh, fortunately for me, when we're starting Sandstorm, 
there still was a lot of capital in actively managed institutional investment funds, and we were able to get Sandstrom off the ground. If, 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 if the conditions were what they are today, I don't know that the 29-year-old version of Nolan Watson uh, would have been successful at starting up Sandstorm. And so we're trying to, trying to help be solve part of that problem. Are there any key aspects you look for in the companies you want to put through Launch Lab beyond quality of asset? Well, you're always looking at well, integrity of management teams. Yep. <laughs> the last thing we want to do is invest in a team that is about to try to screw a whole bunch of people and then go tell a bunch of people about it. <laughs> we, we want to invest in assets that have massive expiration upside with good teams that are genuinely working their hardest to make money for investors. Can you talk about any companies that might be going through this process now, or is it too early at this point? Not yet. We're working on a few things. Any any timeline you could give us for when the world can expect the first Launch Lab project? I have always in my career attempted to resist giving people timelines for things <laughs> when the decisions Fair are out of, out of my hand. But uh, certainly in the, next, in the next couple quarters, I would hope to have something out. Okay. Fair enough. Um, I want to talk about uh, setbacks and you know dealing with setbacks and dealing with failures in the mining space. I mean, probably everyone listening to this podcast, certainly anyone working in the industry, any investor that's ever you know wagered a dollar in this industry will be very aware uh, that it's incredibly cyclical. That there's ups and downs, and you know even the best companies have good times and bad times. I mean, Sandstorm is a perfect example that it started in a very good market. Uh, you were, you know, 29 years old. It had a very good run the first several years. I, I don't know what it opened at, but it went up to over $14 at its height. Yeah, I think our first financing was done. Uh, I'm doing all these numbers on a post rollback. Was done at 50 cents, and then our you know first large financing was done at two dollars, and then yeah, it ran to uh, 12 or 14 dollars. Although I will say that we were trading probably at three or four times NAV. Yeah. Uh, back then, and the market was just going absolutely crazy, and yes. people were putting stupid money and stupid valuations on all mining companies, not just Sandstorm. But <clears throat> so you're a young CEO at this point. You're in your early 30s. A meteoric success. Yeah. Uh, I mean. Everything's coming up roses at that point, and then the market turns. Uh, mining crashes, gold price crashes, everything crashes, and sandstorm goes down with it. I think the low was in 2016, just under three dollars. Yeah. So, this happens a lot in mining. Sandstorm is by far not the only company that's experienced this, but that's typically where it ends for most companies. Uh, you know, they get decimated, and then some other bigger, stronger company with a, a strong balance sheet comes in and buys them up or takes them out. You know, often, if they're lucky, uh, sometimes they're just left to die on their own. Um, <laughs> More often than not, they, they die. <laughs> yeah, but Sandstorm didn't die there, obviously. Over the last several years, the share price has climbed back up. You've changed a lot of things internally, uh, both in the, you know, the assets you go after and then the team here. And what I'm interested in is what sort of changes did you make and how did this experience affect your decision-making process and how you run the company? Yeah, certainly made a number of changes. Well, I guess first of all, one thing in this business is you have to understand the cyclicality. Um, we were significantly overvalued at $14 per share. Our share price, as you said, fell to three and now it's doubled again. Um, but even now we're back up to a billion dollar market cap and I think we're trading at a fraction of what our inherent value is. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't say that last time we were at a billion dollar market cap. And I want to note there, you are traded at a slightly lower multiple than your peers as well, right? Um, 
and I do want to ask you why why you think that is and how yep. you're combat, combating that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think that, I guess, to get back to some of the changes that we made, um, one of the things that we did was we had so much success so early. I think we thought we were probably a little bit smarter than we actually were. Mm. And when we started the company, we didn't have any any money. I mean, we had no money. We couldn't afford to hire a good technical team. So you don't mean personally. You mean in the company in as the well. Company kind of, no... The company had very little money. I mean, all of the money that we raised went to do our first two deals. I was still working for no salary for the first couple of years. And so we, we didn't have enough money to hire world-class geologists or engineers and that type of stuff. And the first couple of streams we bought took a while to actually kick in and actually start generating cash flow. Yep. And so gold prices were going up every day. You turned around. Our valuation was going up every day. And all of a sudden you start to think, hey, maybe I don't need to hire an expensive technical team, even when you get to the point where you can afford one. And then we acquired some things that we uh, wish we hadn't in hindsight. And uh, one of the big changes that we made was at the bottom, we went out and hired what I believe to be the best or one of the best technical teams, geologists and engineer uh, group in the world. And that mistake that we made when we were first starting Sandstorm has turned into one of the greatest strengths that we have today. And I think one of the key differentiators, in fact, uh, two days ago, I received an email from an investor saying, I saw the last video that you guys put out. Thanks for doing that. Why did you not tell everyone how awesome your technical team is? <laughs> because they're like the key reason that I've invested in the company now. So investors have gone from seeing that as a weakness in Sandstorm to seeing it as one of our biggest ranks. Quali the quality of the other people, not just the technical team, is a big thing that we changed. And also how we how we invest and what, really, what risks we're willing to take. So for example, I had to phone a, an executive at another mining company just this morning and that we'd been looking at their asset and just say, sorry, you're not in the bottom half of the cost curve and we're not willing, we're not able to invest in your company. And that's not something that we would have said when we were first starting up Sandstorm. We're really focused on core assets that will have long lives, lots of expiration upside and low cost to low cost of production. And is that just a matter of learning that these are the important factors that you want to focus on? Or is it now having now having the capital to be choosy with what you go after as well too? It's it's both. We now have the luxury of having 189 royalties in our portfolio. Getting the 190th, although it's something we're going to do, we don't need to do it. Right. You know, a lot of investors, when they're looking right. at investing in Sandstorm, they'll ask me, you know, I'm, I'm trying to decide if I should invest in Sandstorm, and uh, I really want to know, do you really think you can find more good assets to buy? And I, I kind of say, well, that's sort of the wrong question to be asking, because even if we never bought another asset, we have an amazing portfolio of assets already that's already worth investing in. And, uh, and and that's the key thing that I think people should be deciding. It's the reason the Sandstorm is actually buying back its own shares in the market. Yep. That's the reason I'm personally buying back Sandstorm shares in the market right now. And um, it's something we're proud of. Well, what's Sandstorm's revenue right now? So right now we have uh, our, our guidance this year going up over the next four years is about to uh, to double. So we've guided around 60,000 ounces of sort of royalty revenue this year, mm -hmm. going up to about 70,000 ounces next year in 2019, going up to about 140,000 ounces based on just things that we've already bought by 2022, 2023. And so uh, our, our cash flow is going to become substantial. And once hot mud's up and running, we should be around 
depending on the gold price you pick, around 100 million to 120 million dollars of free cash flow per year US. I think it's probably important to note for people who are, are less familiar with the streaming and royalty space, you could fire everyone, turn off the lights right now, and that would keep coming in for the next however many years. Absolutely. So, I mean, if you compare that to a mining company that is bringing in 100,000 plus ounces a year, I mean, that may be a half a billion to a billion dollar company, but their capital outlays and overhead costs are many, many order of magnitudes greater than you would yeah, I think, here. and if I have any employees listening to this, although that's not the plan, <laughs> <laughs> but we literally could let go of every single person and just keep one accountant around to do the financial statements. And seven years from now, we'd probably double our market cap. Uh, I'm just estimating. I don't know what the future price of gold is going to be, but it, it is one of the benefits of our model. So what's the priority going forward from here? Uh, obviously, you want to grow the company. What is the strategy for that? Is it more of these big royalty packages? Is it finding key specific assets? What are what is how does Sandstorm differentiate well, itself? It's from good the timing other to be asking me that question because two and a half weeks ago we just had a, a board strategy offsite for three days where we locked ourselves in a room and asked all those questions. One of the other questions you asked was about trading multiples, and we do trade at a bit of a discount to Franco Nevada and Royal mm-hmm. Gold and, and Wheat and Precious Metals and Cisco Royalties. And part of the strategy session was answering the question of what characteristics do their por- does their portfolio have that ours doesn't? And I think that is one of the things that is going to drive our strategy for the next five years. So if you look at Franco Nevada, they have not only a large number of royalties, they're up to about 400 royalties. They have uh, no one asset more than 25% to their net asset value. And it's a, it's a high quality asset. They have... Uh, probably 80% of their NAV is either in production or is going to be in production in the next year. So a very small percent of their portfolio is future growth. It's things happening now or in the next year or so. When you look at Sandstorm, we have 35% of our NAV in Hot Modern, which is some risk concentration. Mm -hmm. We have only 38% of our NAV is in production. Okay. So the the upside to that means we've got more growth than everybody else coming on over the next five years because we have all of these assets that are going to be being built. But the market very clearly, and we've got a chart that we, we put to our board, the market very clearly pays a NAV multiple directly correlated to what percent of the portfolio is in production. Like right. retail investors, we think about investing in one year, two year, five year, 10 year time horizons. Mm-hmm. Institutional investors are two weeks to three months. I mean, that's how a lot of them think. It is show me now. I don't care that you're going to have growth four years from now. I'm not going to be holding your shares four years from now. So one of the things that we used to be very proud of is that we were always sort of longer term thinking in terms of a management team. And we still are always going to be long term oriented. But I think part of the strategy for the next five years is let's focus on constructing a portfolio that people want to pay two times now for. And so we are going to be focusing 90% plus of our capital invested over the next five years, buying things that are in production or will be in production very shortly. And uh, we've, we've already got a huge amount of growth built in. We don't need to be buying the growth. We need to be buying shorter term assets so where investors can see our current cash flow ramping up very quickly. Is there a type of investor you're trying to attract now? One, yeah, ones with money. Ones with money. <laughs> right. That's a good place to start. 
Um, but you are you are making a concerted effort, especially with Launch Lab, to build this list of accredited investors who are going to be seeing the companies you're investing in, as well as Sandstorm. Is Sandstorm trying to attract more institutional investors, or, or having this large base of both? I think I think you need institutional investors. I think you need retail investors. So if you look at, at Sandstorm shareholder base right now, we're about fifty percent retail, fifty percent institutional. The fifty percent institutional is in only about four hundred funds. But we have about another 42,000 retail investors. Uh, both are important groups of investors to us. One of the things that we are going to be focusing on for the next several years is a, creating the type of company and the type of portfolio that large generalist investors want to invest in. So when I say yep. what we're looking for is investors with money, the vast majority of the capital in the world right now is sitting with generalist investors. It's not with mining specialist investors. And so... Uh, I don't know if you remember Brexit a couple of years ago, but right around uh, when that was happening, there was a, a large generalist investor that phoned up an investment bank and said, I want to buy a low-risk gold mining company. They currently own zero gold stocks. And the institutional sales guy said, well, I think Sandstorm's your best bet. And the guys went out and bought $25 million worth of our shares in a, a matter of minutes. And we know that generalist investors are not looking at the gold space right now because yeah. gold's in a bit of a funk. But what we're trying to do is create the company that when gold starts ripping and all these generalist investors go, why am I underperforming the benchmark? Oh, it's because I don't own any gold. And they phone up some sales guy and say, what is a low-risk company that has lots of torque to the upside that I should be buying? We want the answer to be Sandstorm. Fair enough. Something else you guys are working on recently, which I find uh, really interesting, is you're getting involved in some early exploration plays. Uh, I mean, we at Resource Insider just participated last week in Progress uh, Minerals. Mm -hmm. And now this is a big exploration play. Uh, I think it's about 2,000 square kilometers in Burkina Faso and Cote d'Ivoire. It's run by a great team that has a lot of long track record in the area. What is Sandstorm's strategy behind these sort of things, which is a little different than these, these bigger key assets? Yeah, so what I was saying before is 90% or more of our capital is going towards sort of larger currently cash flowing or soon to be cash flowing things. This would not be in that category. Mm -hmm. But the other 10% of our capital is still a really important part of our strategy. And what we're looking for are assets that, as you said, have good management teams that have had success before that know how to operate in that region, but uh, have huge land packages with tons of exploration upside. I mean, that's what we're looking for. We're not looking for small wins. We're not looking for some guy who's going to go find 100,000 ounces, then figure out how to try to mine it and make a bit of money. We're looking for very significant wins with that lower risk than typical. So and what we liked about that one was, uh, I think it's 2,000 square kilometers that they have under option right now under their various properties throughout yep. Cote d'Ivoire and Burkina Faso. And they have the capital to drill all of the ore that they are, uh, the, the mineralization that they're hitting, which is what I would consider ore grade, is right at the surface, so it's super cheap drilling. I mean, one of the things that that I don't like is investing in assets where you're trying to hit a narrow vein from really far away through hard rock, and so right. you've got, you, know, you raise $3 million, and maybe it gets you seven holes. <laughs> yeah. Whereas for $3 million, drilling right at surface with RC drilling in Burkina Faso, you can get you know, 10,000 meters for that same same uh, amount, which works out to, you know, sometimes hundreds of holes. And so you get way more information and you can build a resource a lot quicker. And, and as an investor, you make money more quickly if the thesis plays out. Okay. Uh, so we're kind of coming to the end of our time. And to wrap up, I just want to ask you, 
What sort of advice do you have for people working in the industry that are that are looking to step out on their own, looking to do their own thing, um, and wanting to, I guess, build the education and the understanding of how to do this. And the reason the reason I ask this is because you know when we first met, some of the first things we talked about is various books we've been reading. Uh, I mean, we both like The Black Swan, and we talked quite some while about that and Nassim Taleb's other work. Is there any sort of self crafted education you would recommend for would-be entrepreneurs, either in the mining space or otherwise? I think just doing lots of reading. Yeah. Some of it will be a waste, <laughs> but some of it you'll really, as you dig into it, you'll hang on to it and and you'll realize that you're reading something that you need to actually fundamentally learn for you to be successful in your career. For me, one of the books, you mentioned it, the, the whole Black Swan concept is a really important one, but one of the things that really helped me earlier in my career is I read a, a book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Mm-hmm. And that is a book designed specifically to help you understand your own brain and all the mistakes that you make and the mistakes that you make in decision making. And that is, it's, you shouldn't go through life making mistakes and not knowing why. And so if you can understand those mistakes, it's very valuable. So I'd recommend people read that, but just read a lot. I read, I read a lot. Yeah. No, I understand, and uh, I think that's something I've seen very consistently across very successful people, that they're constantly reading and they're constantly consuming as much information, and I think it's a good point that you make that it's hard to know what will add value in advance, really, because I've read a lot of books that I thought would be great or were more or less useless, and some that were <laughs> recommended to me or kind of just fell across my lap that I went into and has added, has completely shifted the way I like look at things. And I mean, the black swan was one of them, for example. So I have a last question, um, and it's a strange question, but uh, I like strange questions. Okay, a lot of people see CEOs or discoverers or the the winners in the mining space, and they say, you know, that guy's lucky. And the thing is, they're probably right. And there's a lot of luck is a huge factor in mining. You need to be lucky with the cycles and getting your timing right. If you're, especially if you're an exploration geologist, you know. Even the best laid plans can go afoul pretty quickly, and you need to have an element of luck there. But you do see certain people that are consistently lucky, and they're able to consistently have successes in and across a space where the odds are really stacked against them. And you know, I have this theory and this concept that people who are able to do this have a have a way of exposing themselves to good luck and. Is there any way you can think of that you've been able to expose yourself to the opportunity of good things happening to you or that you've seen some of your peers and contemporaries across the space sort of make those decisions or make those moves? Hmm. Well, it's, it's, it's a good question. I think I remember back to a dinner that I had in, I was probably 24 years old, maybe 25 and I was at a dinner uh, for the board members of Gold Corp, and Ian Telfer was there, and Ian Telfer was talking about luck. And he said, you can be the smartest person in the whole world, but if you don't get lucky, uh, you're, not, you're not ever going to do anything really that significant in your life. And he looked at me, and he said, Nolan down there, who's you know been the valedictorian of everything and you know, <laughs> finished the top of his class, he probably disagrees with me. But Nolan, one day you'll realize that sometimes luck is involved. 
in order for you to be successful. And I, I thought he had absolutely no idea what he was talking about <laughs> until it, it happened to me in my career. And if I look back at my career, there are a number of pivot points where I would not have been in that position had I not been working my butt off for years and years and years. Sure, yeah. I wouldn't have had the opportunity to become lucky. But then something happened and I latched onto it and grabbed it and sort of rode the wave. Uh, even when I started up Sandstorm uh, with Dave Warham, we spent three months on the road. It was during the Great Recession. There was no money anywhere. Mm -hmm. And we were walking around the street asking for $50 million. I mean, in a period of time where no Canadian company had IPO'd or done any material bought deal financing in six months. I mean, there was no money anywhere. And we were so desperate for money, we were going to places like Winnipeg. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it had gotten to the point where it was very clear we were not going to be successful at building a book of $50 million. And we had, the reason it was 50 was because we just negotiated two acquisitions. We needed that $50 million to close those two acquisitions. And I specifically remember a conversation with my wife where I said, I, I don't think this is going to happen. I think i got to go figure out a new job. And in fact, I had just been offered a job by a major gold mining company that was seeing Sandstorm not be successful. And they said, you probably want a job and we want you. And, and I got an awesome job offer from a company that I, I won't mention which one. And so I was sitting at my desk one day and I had a multimillionaire, uh, almost billionaire, phone me. And he said, um, you know, Nolan, in my experience, successful investors and people with money invest like sheep and they do not like to uh, do anything but just follow other smart people and so I'm phoning you to say bah and he bad like a sheep on, on the phone <laughs> and he said I'm gonna invest seven million dollars in your company and I guarantee you you're gonna get money from other people in the next three days when they find out I'm investing. So he was saying that he's acting basically as the catalyst to get it going. Absolutely. And did that occur? It that did. And a whole bunch of his friends came in shortly thereafter. We we launched the company, raised the, the $50 million, and the rest is history. We've turned it into a billion-dollar company. But if I hadn't gotten that phone call, I don't know that Sandstorm would exist today. And so I think, I think the key in life is work super hard, work strategically, always be trying to put yourself in a position to be lucky but sometimes things won't work out and when they don't either strategically decide to keep moving forward in the same direction or pivot and go do something else and put yourself in a position to be lucky somewhere else but you always have to be putting yourself in that position to get lucky fair enough i think that's a good place to end it um if listeners want to learn more about sandstorm or yourself personally where should they go check you out or sandstorm out there's this awesome thing called Google, and you can Google Sandstorm, and we'll be the first thing that, <laughs> that pops up. Or you can go to our website at, at sandstormgold.com. All right. Thanks for taking the time today. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.